0: Some children that were uh, playing together on a Saturday afternoon in the backyard and they were uh, looking for some games to play and um, they were somewhat you know, dissatisfied with the usual games of cops and robbers and hide and seek and all those kind of things that children have a tendency to playing and so they were sort of discussing among themselves what some new games they might possibly play and there were several suggestions that were made but all were quickly turned down because they didn't seem to be a whole lot of fun and finally one little fellow said I know a game we can play let's play the game Jesus. And somebody asked, well, how do we play the game Jesus? He said, well, one of us can be those mean, cruel, wicked people who chase Jesus around the backyard, and we can spit on him, we can kick him, we can slap him, we can call him names, and we can beat him up, and, uh, you know, eventually we can uh, pretend like we're going to nail him to the cross. Well, that sounded like a lot of fun to a couple of kids that were pretty much bored, and so they decided they would play the game. The only problem is they had a hard time finding someone who would volunteer to be Jesus. Until finally, Joey, the smallest, the... So the run of the group, who was always last to be picked in anything, found his opportunity to shine. And he said, I know what, I'll be Jesus. And so he was the primary part in this game that they were about to play. Until he realized that when the game started, as the kids started kicking him and slapping him and trying to hurt him and calling him names and all kinds of things. And he was doing everything he could to sort of avoid the cruelty of these children. Until finally he found himself cornered in the back of the, of the backyard between the fence. And they were all about to pounce on him at the same time when finally, little Joey made this comment. He said, stop, stop. Let's stop playing Jesus, and let's start playing church. Now, what we do here in church is not a game, and the reason why it's not a game is because the stakes are incredibly high. What are the stakes? The stakes are the souls of men and women, boys and girls, who do not know Christ as their Savior. But the stakes are not only the souls of those who would come to faith in Christ, but I think the stakes are also in regard to the family, because we see from the very beginning in the Old Testament, in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, where Satan has not only launched his attack against individuals, he has launched an attack against the family itself. For he divided. Adam and Eve in that garden, when they committed that original, that first sin in the Garden of Eden, he later then divided the two brothers, where one actually slew the other, and he has been seeking, I think, to to engage as much as he possibly can in the destruction of individual lives, but I'm convinced also the destruction of the family unit that God created when he first created Adam and Eve and gave them children. What we are doing here and what we are living out, we are not living and we are not doing life on a playground. We are, in fact, on a battlefield. For there is an enemy that is actively involved in seeking to not only destroy individuals, but he is seeking to destroy families. And as we then come into our second part in the series that we are talking about in regard to family We need to understand in Ephesians chapter 6 beginning with verse 10 That we must wage war against an enemy that is seeking to devour and to destroy not only individuals but also families How do we engage the enemy? I want to look at four things this morning as you take a look at your text in Ephesians chapter 6 beginning with verse 10 How do I fight for my family? Well, first of all, I think it's important that we need to team up. There's an aspect of teaming up with someone outside of ourselves who has all of the resources and all of the, the power and all of the energy and all of the strength to be able to enable us, to equip us, and empower us to be able to overcome an enemy. Notice what he says in verse 10. He said, "...finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might." That word finally is an interesting word to me. It's a word that, that sort of says to me that now he's coming into a realm, into an aspect of the word in which he is going to be describing something that individually they must be involved in, but I think individually they're to be involved in it in a family unit as well. Because if you look at the earlier parts of the, of the narrative before this one, you see that he describes, let's say, just, just take, for example, Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 1. He talks about the relationship between family members, and then a couple of verses down after that, he then talks about the relationship between the employer and the employee. And what we fail to realize that when this was written, that many times what the father did, the son did. If the father was a, a mechanic, the son was a mechanic. If the father was a carpenter, the son was a carpenter. If, and, and so it was a family-run business. And so I'm convinced that in his... Directives that he gave to the employer In regard to the employee He's talking about how to engage In a family business So up until this passage in Ephesians 6.10, he's been addressing the family. So why do we all of a sudden, when, when we come to Ephesians 6.10, sort of disregard what he has said previously in other verses in Ephesians 6, where he lays out incredible principles regarding the family? I'm convinced that the Spirit of God had in mind not just the individual spiritual warrior, the Christian or the Christian soldier, but I'm convinced he is speaking also to the Christian family. Because in the day in which this was written, it was no, not any easier to live for Jesus then than it is today. And you might want to disagree with that a little bit, but I encourage you to do a little study on the, 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 the city of Ephesus and what these people were, saving, were being saved out of or saved from. And all of the influence that the that the city of Ephesus and all the wickedness and all of the, the stuff that was going on, these people were being saved out of a, a wretched, horrific lifestyle and a, a culture that was totally reprobate and that disregarded God completely. And so he's speaking to them finally as a result of all that I have said. This is what I want you then now to do. So finally, he says, be strong. That word be strong is in the passive voice. And it simply means that he wants us to be strong, not in and of ourselves. But this is a passive, meaning to be strengthened. It means that it's something that is done unto us. It is something that is done for us. He's not encouraging, nor is he asking them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, to exercise the energy that is necessary in and of themselves, independently and apart from God. But he's saying that you must now be dependent upon the very strength that was necessary in order to make you or to bring you unto salvation now that same strength that brought you unto salvation is the same strength that i want you to depend upon and rely upon as you engage the enemy isn't it great to know that as we engage the enemy it's not based upon my strength that's going to give me the victory over the enemy because we don't have the strength to make that a reality in and of yourself independently and apart from christ it was Christ who gave us our salvation, enabled us, so to speak, to rise above from the sin that we were in, to be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. And as a result of that, he has now positioned us in Christ's righteousness. And now we have been positioned because he said, finally, be strong, what? In the Lord. He talks about the lordship of Christ Christ now is the Lord of your life. How and when did that happen? The moment you recognize your sin, you turn to faith in Jesus, place your faith and trust in Him, He then became your Lord. Christ who came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, to then die on the cross for sins that He did not commit, to then... To be buried in a tomb but to be raised from the dead three days later has given us now the position of victory. And he now as our Lord is the one that we have put our faith and trust in. And now we no longer stand defeated but we stand in victory. We're going to come to that a little bit later on in our study in just a few moments. But we are positioned now in victory. And in that position of victory through faith in Christ, there's this incredible power. Notice, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In the strength of his might. He and he alone is able to direct, not only direct, but to determine the outcome of the battle. The battle is the Lord's, and he alone dictates and determines what that outcome is. And you take a look at it, it is his strength and it is his might. He is the one that, that, that possesses all the qualities that are necessary to dictate and determine the outcome. Satan does not determine the outcome. You don't determine the outcome. The Lord determines the outcome. He and he alone is sovereign and he and he alone is Lord. And not only has he already determined that outcome in your life when he saved you, but he has continually determined the outcome because he has all the necessary qualities to make what happened what he wants to happen for you and I to live victorious over that which Satan brings into our lives through his strength and his might. Did you notice that? Finally be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. Not yours, but his. But to take the word Lord to, and I want to close with this and this one single point, this aspect of Lord here is a practical strength that he gives us because the reality is, let's face it, even though we made him the Lord of our lives or salvation, doesn't necessarily that we continue to make him the Lord of our lives post-salvation. It's a conscience choice that choice that we continue to make every day and every moment of our lives, isn't it? To submit ourselves to his authority, to submit ourselves to his sovereignty For whatever reason, and I, I quibble with this a lot That while God is sovereign, we have a will and in and of myself, like Adam and Eve in the garden, there are some times when my will takes charge, and I grab the steering wheel, and I do what I want, and I am not submitting then into obedience to his lordship, I am convinced that you cannot be victorious over Satan and enjoy the positional sanctification and the positional victory that you have in Christ if you surrender that lordship and choose to sin. And so it requires a surrender but it also to make him Lord requires a submissiveness on my part where it isn't my strength, but it is his strength that I am relying upon. I mean, let's face it, people, we live in the Midwest. We do. And what are we in the Midwest? We're proud people. We don't think we need anyone else to survive. We can do it ourselves. We can pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And it kind of reminds me of the story that I was read to, and I used to read to my children. It was about that that little book called The Little Train That Could. Anybody read that? Come on, you you read that? That was read to you, or you read it to your kids, right? right? Now, why do we do that? Because we want to instill confidence into our children, right? And, and it's a little book about a little train that's going up this hill, and you can tell by the by the you know the the, the very simple drawing that it's a hill that, that is quite challenging, and the train is beginning to go up the hill. And as it's going up the hill, what is it saying? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And if you were like me, you in right, you kind of embellished it a little bit. And then finally, when the train got to the top of the hill, what happens? I know I could I knew I could I knew I could and it goes down the hill why do we do that to instill in our children that there's there are no impossibilities but the problem with that story is this it's the I in the story it's not about I at all And it's the I that often becomes the major problem and the major focus that we have when we come against Satan in all of his schemes and all of his ploys and all of his disguise and all of the temptations. It's I think I can. And the reality is you cannot independently and apart from Christ on your own. I had somebody one time who wasn't a believer told me that Christianity is for weak people because they need a crutch. They need someone to do something for them that they can't do for themselves. I said, absolutely. That is right. Because I can't save myself, nor can I independently and apart from Christ overcome an enemy that is stronger than me. Just as in salvation, I could not save myself, I cannot overcome the enemy alone, and neither can you. You can't muster up an up- Discipline or enough Effort or enough Self will or Enough thinking or enough Whatever to win the Fight And there are many individuals And there are many families Who become casualties To Satan himself Because he has gotten them to take their eyes Off Christ their dependence off Jesus and have focused on themselves Thinking I can save My marriage I can raise my kids on my own. And the reality is you can't. So I need to team up with a resource outside myself and look to the source who is Christ, who gave me my salvation and who strengthens me for battle. Number two, I need to suit up. It's interesting you got to suit up. There's an aspect of responsibility and accountability that we have. In other words, we need to suit up. Notice Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word put on is an action to put it on. Now, when do I put it on? doesn't mean that you're to put it on. I'm convinced that what it says here is that we are to continually keep it on. To c- continually keep it on. Because, you see, the armor is something that we receive, I'm convinced, at salvation. You can't be saved unless you're clothed with the armor that is about to be described. In the aspect of trusting Christ as your Savior, you are clothed with this armor. And what he is indicating to these believers is that once clothed in this armor, when you come to faith in Christ, you are to continually put it on, to keep it on, to stay suited for the battle. Don't remove it. Don't take it off. Don't disregard it. Don't dismiss it. But continually put on, notice, the whole armor of God. Where does the armor come from? It's not something that we fabricate, it's not something that we make It's not like one of the airplanes that maybe you create Or the house you may build or whatever you may do Where you don't create anything, God created, God made it And God gave it to him, it is his armor that he equips us with It came from him, but notice, not only did it come from God But it is a, a full armor, the whole armor And he's saying you need to suit up with everything that's necessary I have equipped you with all that is necessary to empower you against the enemy And you need to stay suited for battle Understanding what that armor is Becoming proficient in its use And then utilize it in warfare It's one thing to know I have it It's another thing to know what it is But it's a completely another thing to become proficient In utilizing it on a moment-by-moment basis When the enemy attacks And I think that's where the shortfall is For many believers today They may know what the armor is They may know what it may do But they're not utilizing it to its maximum effect In helping us and empowering us against the enemy To put on the whole armor of God Why? So that you may be able to stand Notice it's the ability to be able to stand What is the enemy trying to do? He's trying to knock you off your block He's not wanting to just cripple you. He's wanting to run you over. Like a little critter that I ran over this week coming to work. To run you over, to flatten you out. Here, this word here, to be able, isn't a possibility. It is a reality. If there's any note that you take, I want to encourage you to write this down. It's not a possibility. It is a reality. Not that you may be able to stand, but you will stand. You can stand. You are not a bystander. You are not a victim in this battle with the enemy. You are standing and you are able to stand. He cannot run you over, period. And he will not. And he will make you have the ability to stand against what? Against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because we have an adversary. That's what the word devil means, an adversary. And this adversary is very very cunning. He has schemes. It means that Satan is very intentional. It means that he is very deliberate. It means that Satan has a strategy with your name on it and your marriage on it, and your family on it, and your children on it. He's not random. He's kind of going around and seeing what happens. He's very intentional. He's very deliberate. He has schemes. He is deceptive. He is cunning. He is diversive. And so we we see in this text that we are to suit up. Anybody here play football in high school or junior high? How about junior high? That's the only time I played football was in junior high, and the reason for that, my parents were, we were missionaries in Brazil, and so we we came to the states when I was in the eighth grade, and I always wanted to play football. I heard my dad playing football, and so I wanted to play football, and so I signed up for the eighth grade football team, and and so went out for football. And I'm pretty tall, but uh, believe it or not, I was pretty skinny back then. <clears throat> okay some of you understand well you're skinny now so i don't i, I get it but anyway um and so uh, you know first day at practice i put on this stuff they gave me i didn't know what a helmet was or shoulder pads or i noticed there was padding here on your legs and other padding i'm thinking hey, this is pretty cool and i didn't fully understand what it was for until there was an exercise where we got into this square that the coach had designed. And I'm on one end, and there's a guy on the other end. And you get down in the stand, you know what I'm talking about? And you charge each other and try to get the other out of the square. And for some, of the re- for some unknown reason to be, I don't know, there was this really huge dude. <laughs> I mean, he's big. Decided he was going to not just... Challenge me that first day But every day thereafter in practice And almost every day when I was getting ready For practice I knew that guy was coming Seriously And uh, but I learned Real quickly why you have Shoulder pads and a helmet and padding In practice Those things have a designated Purpose they may not Keep you completely from Some pain but they will definitely help But after practice each day, what do I do? I take it off and lay it aside in that smelly locker and I put on my regular clothes and go home. The armor that God has given us has been given to us for a reason. Not just for protective measures, but to attack as well. There's an offensive and defensive purpose in the armor that God has given us. And when we suit up with the armor that he has given us at salvation, we are to understand by this text that we are to always... Always, always wear it. There is never a moment, there is never a time, there is never an opportunity when you can take it off and just go out and not have it fully engaged. But there is never a moment when you don't need to be equipped and empowered for the enemy. Why? Because he is relentless, he is ruthless, and he never rests, and he's always on the offensive. To run you down and to mow you over So how do I fight for my life, for my marriage, for my family, for my kids Is I constantly stay suited for battle Number three, I need to wise up I think there's a lot of people that just need to wise up Or you might want to say wake up Because there's an understanding here He wants us to be clear In regard to the enemy that we are facing Notice in verse 12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood But against rulers, against authorities Against cosmic powers over the present darkness Against the spiritual forces of evil In the heavenly realms For we do not want you to We we want you to understand That you do not wrestle against flesh and blood Part of the, the understanding Part of the wisdom comes in knowing That we don't fight flesh and blood can I can I say this to the spouses here your spouse is not your enemy I know sometimes you may think they are but they're not parents who didn't get much sleep last night your young children are not your enemies the enemy is not human it's not flesh and blood there are times when Satan does use enemies for uh, use, use humans for his purpose. But our enemies are not flesh and blood. We demonize people when the reality is the enemy is Satan. That man who shot and killed what 58, 59 people, 500 plus wounded, people were looking for answers. I'll tell you what the answer is. It's it's Satan. It's demons I don't think you can do that And not be demonically possessed To randomly kill that many people And be that cold blooded And that deliberate and that intentional To make that much Inflict that much damage and hurt And pain on people That man is not Was not the enemy The answer is biblical It's Satan And it's demonic Because it is a spiritual force that's coming against us It's not flesh and blood So when somebody does something that Well, you know what I'm talking about Just know that it might be the devil Using them As God once used a jackass He did in the New Testament, look it up Satan sometimes uses people to accomplish his purpose. You're not fighting against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual force. A spiritual force that has spiritual beings. It's not just one being. It's many beings, notice, but against the rulers. That's plural. Against the authorities, that's plural. Against the cosmic powers, that's plural. Against spiritual forces, that's plural. The enemy has a host, a legion, if not multiple legions, of fallen angels who are at his beck and call, who are committed to following his commands. And he leads by fear and intimidation, by the way, not out of love and devotion. And they are against you. That word against is a preposition of location. And it indicates that they are not for you. But they are against you. Satan, I don't care how he presents himself, is never for you. He is not out for your best interest. He disguises himself and he pretends. And he offers things that we think are good for us. Beneficial. Lucrative. They will bring progress into our lives and produce something in us that we somehow crave and desire and want but in that offering there are hooks like a hook on a bait for a fish in which he's wanting to reel you in and fry you for supper that night he's against you he's not for you and so we must be a Attentive to that because he disguises himself. He's like, a, he's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He sometimes presents himself as light when in reality he is darkness. And he puts on facades and he wears masks and he has this camouflage about him that sometimes if we don't discern the spirits, we won't recognize him. And we'll be sucked in by his temptation and become a victim to what he lures at us. And I think we need to be alert in a part of that wisdom. There's an alertness to that because notice it says, darkness. We need to be alert to the fact that that his spiritual influence is an influence toward darkness, not toward goodness, but toward darkness, not toward godliness, but toward sin. He never lures you to God. He never moves you toward that which is good for you it's always dark it's always deadly it's always sin it's always painful but also the word evil means that he's vile he's wicked he's sinful he's seeking to lead you in a path of destruction and death I want to I want you to turn with me real quick I read this in my devotional this week In, in Isaiah chapter 39 the, the words and the verse is not on the screen So don't worry about it If you can't see, bring up your iPhone Make it brighter, whatever you have to do But, but in Isaiah chapter 39 I read this incredible story That sort of helped me realize How sometimes we act very unwisely Notice in the text in verse 39 We're going to quickly read these, these eight verses And at the time Babylon sent envoys with leaders and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasured house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm or his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. This is Babylon now. They, they are enemies, and they came bearing gifts, and he received their gifts, and now he's showing them all of the realm of his kingdom, all the wealth, and he's inviting them to sort of take inventory of all that he has. Then Isaiah the prophet, it says in verse 3, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come from to you? Where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouse that I did not show them. Why would he do that? I would say it's not very wise. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to what the word of the Lord says through Isaiah the prophet. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which is your father's have stored up to this day shall be carried off by the Babylons. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. There are consequences to your ignorance, hezekiah and notice his his his, notice his remark this blew me away i probably read it a hundred times and never really saw this notice what he said then hezekiah said to isaiah the word of the lord that you have spoken is good i don't know about you but i never thought it was good to receive punishment from my dad you know When I did something bad and he sent me one of those talks, I hated the talk, just go ahead and get it over with, you know? And he continued and said, this is for your good. And I would look at him and said, yeah, Dad, this is for my good. I never said that. There are consequences to his lack of wisdom. But there's an explanation. It says, for he thought there would be peace and security in my days. It is unwise for us to think that the consequences, while they may not affect us immediately, while those consequences may be delayed, there are consequences to poor decisions that we make in allowing the enemy too close of a proximity and to wreak havoc on our lives and on our families. Hezekiah did not act wisely, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons why most of us have become victims rather than victors against a ba- in a battle against an enemy that is ruthless is because we're not acting wisely. We are not seeing him for who he is. He is not flesh and blood. He is a spiritual enemy in the heavenly realms, and it is a spiritual battle, and he is not out for our best interest. He is out for our demise, and he will Kill, steal, and destroy everything, everything God has given, if we allow it. Number four, not only team up, suit up, and wise up, but number four, and last, stand up. Therefore, as he concludes, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." Now, I know you're probably thinking the same thing I'm thinking. When I read this, it sounded like he repeated himself, right? Well, he does. And every time God repeats himself, why would he do that? Are you ready? Can you hear that? It's hollow in here. Did you know that? I'm a little dense, but so are you. And there are times when God has to repeat himself to his children, like you often do to your children. Because your head is as hollow, your heart is as hard, and your attitude is as stubborn as theirs. And God is repeating himself. And he says, therefore, in other words, he's saying, I want you as my children to act responsibly. Therefore, take into consideration what I have just said. It is of extreme importance to you, to your marriage, and to your family. Therefore, take up the responsibility and act responsibly. Don't act irresponsibly. You have the encouragement, you have the equipping, you have the empowerment. Therefore, I want you to take up the whole armor. Apply what I have given to you. Apply it. Not just part of it, but all of it. Learn what it is Learn how it operates And then utilize it for the purpose that it was given to you So that you might, as you engage the enemy Take the full effect of the full armor That I have given you To overcome the evil one You have what is necessary You have the whole armor That I have equipped you with Why? So that you may be able to withstand the evil day You must act intentionally, he's saying there's not only accepting responsibility and applying the armor, there's an intentionality that I need, to, I need, to, I need to, to withstand. I need to resist. I need to oppose this enemy that is in opposition to me. You can't make a peace treaty with him. There are no terms that you can come with him that are acceptable to God, should be acceptable to you, Because even if you were to make a peace treaty with him He doesn't keep his arrangements or his agreements He's a liar And he will lie through his teeth To compromise with you And he never delivers What he promises And he says And having done all I like that statement And I looked at it and I thought that's a cool statement And having done all And I looked at the all part And I think what he's saying, attempt great things, great victories for God. There's nothing, there's nothing that you can do or that he can do that won't or that will defeat you. As you charge him, as you withstand him, you can do all. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. For you see, we are we are standing, we are operating from a place of victory. Already. Have you ever read the last couple of words of the last book of your Bible? Who wins? Come on, who wins? We win! Not just he wins, we win. We're on his team. Texas beat K-State yesterday. In case you missed it. in double overtime. Thank you, Mike, for that information today. I didn't have time to watch it. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that I'm a, I'm a Texas fan, I'm a KU fan, I'm a KU fan, who also, I think, lost, Right? To Texas Tech. It's like the two Texas teams won last yesterday. And we have a tendency to think, well, I'm a Texas team, you're a Kansas team, blah, blah, blah. We're all on the same team, people. If we have placed our faith and trust in Christ. And when he wins, I win, you win, we win. But the reality is we already, when we go into this battle with the enemy, we go from a position of already knowing what the outcome is. It doesn't mean we slack off or we don't play or we don't engage, but it means that we do our level best to win. But we know what the outcome is. And sometimes in the third quarter, we may think, or when it comes to the end of the we may think, hey, it looks like we're going to lose perceptions are not always reality and in the end I've read the last couple of words on the last page of the last chapter in my Bible and it says in the end God wins I win you win we win because he has already won the battle for us and we operate from a position of victory already so when your marriage comes with whatever it comes with Whenever your parenting is having issues, when your children are straying from God and your grandchildren are not what you had imagined, operate from a reality of who's going to win in the end. And I want to close with this. It's entitled The Piano Lesson. The Piano Lesson. Wishing to encourage her young son's progress on the piano, a mother looked I'm sorry, a mother took the small, her small boy to a Paderewski concert. I think I said that right. And after they were seated, the mother spotted a friend in the audience and walked down the aisle and greeted her. Seizing the opportunity to explore the wonders of the concert hall, the little boy rose and eventually explored his way through a door marked no admittance. When the house lights dimmed and the concert was about to begin the mother returned to her seat and discovered that her son was missing suddenly the curtains parted and spotlights focused on the impressive steinway that was placed in the center of the stage and in horror the mother saw her little boy sitting at the keyboard innocently picking out the tune of twinkle twinkle little star At that moment, the great maestro made his way onto the stage, quickly moved to the piano, and whispered in the boy's ear, don't quit, keep playing. Then leaning over, Paderewski repeated, uh, reached down with his right hand and began playing a bass part. Soon his right arm reached around the other side of the child And added a running Obligato Is that right? Close Thank you, Michael And together the old master and the young novice Transformed a frightening situation into a wonderfully creative experience The audience was mesmerized And they gave the two a standing ovation You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I think I'm playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on a stage that was designed for a master. And it's in those moments when my Heavenly Father and your Heavenly Father comes up and he whispers in our ear, don't stop playing. Don't stop fighting. Don't throw in the towel. And he reaches over with his left arm and he begins to play the bass. And he reaches under his right arm and he surrounds us, envelops us with himself, and makes our chopsticks a masterpiece. Let's pray.